0: I'm going to ask you to do something particularly challenging today, which is to open the Bible to two places. So if you could open your Bible to James chapter 4, and uh, maybe just slot the bookmark in there. We'll come to that in a second. And the other passage is Acts 20. I know I'm really testing you guys today, so... I want to begin in Acts 20. We're taking up the theme of... The final message in Church in the City series, the theme of leaving the city, and uh, it seemed to me appropriate to read these two passages. One of them is a, a narrative, a story of Paul saying goodbye to um, the Ephesian elders. If you've read the book of Acts, perhaps you remember how he planted the church in Ephesus uh, and how he labored there for two years, which is a long time for Paul, but really got to know these, these men so deeply. And they shared such a, a deep affection for each other as he worked so hard in that city to build the church up. But in his various journeys, he'd moved on and he traveled around uh, the, the empire of Rome planting other churches. And uh, he's now heading back to Jerusalem, where it all began. And he knows that when he goes there, he's going to get into trouble. He knows it. Because common sense tells him. He knows it because the Holy Spirit had told him and that he'd spoken to him through a prophet. And he knows that this could be his final journey, effectively, sort of voluntary journey. So here's Paul traveling. And as he, he passes near Ephesus, and as he passes near Ephesus, he calls for the Ephesian elders to come and say goodbye to him, the leaders of the church. And they have this this emotional time together of um, of saying their final goodbyes. And Paul speaks to the man. I only want to read you a few verses from what he says, but I'll pick up from verse 22. He says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. I love that word because it depicts his heart posture towards God in the mission that he was living in his life, constrained by the Spirit. He felt there really was no option but to follow God's leading not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And he does, of course, get arrested in Jerusalem and ends up being transported around the Roman Empire uh, from prison to prison. <clears throat> but he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Jump down to verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. If you could turn to James 4 as well, I want to read to you the end of that chapter from verse 13. Very different tone, but this is a wisdom book with guidance for life. And now he talks about how you make future plans. James 4, 13. Come now, you who say... All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Over the past couple of months, what I've been laboring to do is to go hard against uh, and to try and attack anything in our hearts of apathy or passivity in terms of our engagement with both the church church but what it means to belong to a church, but also what it means to belong to the church in this city, that this is not something that we should be uh, mindless about, but rather fully conscious of and understand theologically what god 's will is for us personally and as a church together to be in the center of this great city and uh, what that means is that for some of us, maybe you 've been searching your heart a little bit and ask you. Whatever reason brought you to London, whatever reason brought you to this this church, perhaps you've been doing some soul work and thinking, reflecting on what your motives are. And uh, maybe God's been bringing about something of a change. Perhaps even if you came in with the wrong reasons, God's sovereign purpose can overrule in your life to turn the direction of your life. And I've seen that so many times. It's been one of the great privileges over the years of being a pastor to see people Captivated and see that renewal, spiritual renewal, as they've come to London thinking they were pursuing one thing, but God had very different plans for them. And if that's going on in your life, don't be surprised. That's how God works. He's so gentle, but He he shakes us. He shakes us to the core, doesn't He? It's a beautiful thing. So here's what I mean, though, about the changing of your desires. I think London, uh, as a city, like all great cities, has a strength which is also its great weakness. It has a strength, which is also its weakness, and it's this. Ask, what, what is that? It's, it's the fact that it's such an attractive place, that people want to come, they want to be here. People are attracted to London for so many reasons, as many reasons as there are people in this room. But you can think of some of the broad headlines, can't you, of, um, of opportunity, or of, um, of fun, or of the dazzling city lights. It could be as simple as that. Um, any, any kind of number of reasons why people are drawn in their... They feel attracted to come to the city, which means that certain kinds of people end up here. People who uh, have something about them, they want to do something with their life, they have certain desires that they're running after, a certain level of ambition perhaps, or of um, an energy that characterizes you as a person. I think you'll see in general that people in London are more like that, especially those who've chosen to be here. There's something different about you than those who maybe settled or decided not, not to leave the towns in which they grew up. And uh, this, is, of course, is a massive strength. It's a strength because, you know, in many ways, it, this is the kind of church we end up gathering. People who are full of energy and dynamism and, and uh, are full of that kind of desire to do something and to be somewhere and to, and to live a meaningful life. But I think that's also the reason why the city has so many problems, one of the reasons, anyway, that it, what it results in is that people are not committed to the city or even to their church within the city because what you were committed to when you came to London was what the city offered. So as soon as you see that offer available elsewhere, then your commitment to the city is loose. Your commitment to what you were in pursuit of is strong. And I think it's a little bit like the girl who... Um, is the party girl who every guy wants to date, but no guy wants to marry, basically. Seems fun for a while, but you know, you'd know you be crazy to settle down. And uh, and that's how how people treat London, right? It's like this, this place where you want to come and have fun, but you don't want to settle down here. You don't want to put down roots. That's not what it's about. As soon as something else seems more attractive, then you move on elsewhere. You grow quickly bored of the, the city and, and all it offers. Uh, whereas maybe... But people from small towns, there's a different thing going on there, and uh, it you know maybe offers you less, but you feel more deeply embedded in and part of the, the city uh, of small towns and the community. So all of this may be true of you, unless God gets hold of you while you are here and starts to radically rewire the way you're thinking and reorient your desires. And he does it in in a deep way, doesn't he? I can't tell you the specifics of God's plan on your life, whether he wants you to stay or whether he wants you to go. But what I want to do today is, uh, because it's just a reality that we face, as a church located where we are, one of the great realities we face is that nearly everyone in this room is going to leave in the next decade or so and probably much earlier And uh, it's a sad thing, but it's also something of the reality we face. So what I need to do today is speak into that, because I've been championing the cause of the city all this time, but I know that for some of you, you're not going to be here forever. So how do you even begin to have reshaped minds around the way you make the decisions about what's next in your life, if indeed there is a next in your life? How do we have a biblical grid for understanding God's will in our lives. How do we seek his will and then walk in his will rather than just like uh, pinging around from one desire to another like um, you know a puck on one of those air hockey tables or something. How do we have a sense of purpose and walk with God in prayerfully and deeply and wisely in life so that whether you stay or whether you go you do it for the right reasons. And that's what I want to speak into and really we're going to leave behind for the time being the theme of the church and the city. And just speak about that. like what are, How do we discover God's will, but then come back to the city and the church towards the end of this, this message? But I want to show you three things that come out from the James passage, uh, James four thirteen onwards, of what it means to make a, a decision, uh, how we make decisions with biblical wisdom in these kinds of li- life decisions. Here's the first thing I want to say, that you must weigh time versus eternity. You must weigh time... Versus eternity. Come now, he says, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, you won't understand James's tone unless you realize that the context he was writing in actually was not a whole lot different from ours. He, he, he was writing to... Jewish people who were scattered across different cities across the empire what we call the Jewish diaspora the scattering and these people were were, were particularly the go-getters of Jewish society they had been proactive in pursuing lives outside of Israel and going to find uh, to make trade and do business in towns all across the empire and so they were they were mobile they were the mobile population with options and this was a unique moment in history actually where this suddenly became possible you know for for most of the millennia previous to this, people were relatively immobile until the Roman Empire came along and established what they called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, where everyone within the borders of Rome, the Roman Empire generally was safe. The roads were, relatively speaking, safe and, and fast. They were straight, they went from town to town, and where you could travel um, more easily than you could at any time in history. still very difficult in comparison to the way we travel today. But it suddenly became possible. And as a result, people were moving around and they had plans and they had ambitions and they had desires and they would, wanted to go to this town and, and start a business there and earn some money there. And then they could think, wow, we could leave and then we can go to this next town. And none of this was normal. This was all very new. And James was starting to speak into this because obviously for us, I mean, this is exactly what we're experiencing today, isn't it? a new wave of of social mobility and options. Our generation in particular, those of us who are kind of in that millennial bracket, are of all generations that have ever lived on the earth, perhaps the most mobile that's ever lived, the most likely to, to, to make plans and to pursue dreams and to run around trying to find meaning in life and to do whatever you feel like doing, and all that's going on. So It has a deep resonance with what James is speaking into here. Come now, he says, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go and do this, that, or the other thing. And our church, in a sense, then, is a a product of these kinds of dynamics. I mean, this church would not exist in the shape it exists in if this wasn't true. If you hadn't, you know, the vast majority, we already discovered, if you did not grow up in London, did you? You were drawn here and making these plans to pursue things, dreams and desires. Now, what does that do to the way that you approach life, then, If we speak positively, it means that you can, it can create a healthy vision, healthy desire, healthy um, sort of ambition, and even the spreading of the gospel, the furthering of the gospel, when people, you know, they lift up their eyes beyond just the parochial and where they grew up and think, there's a whole world out there and things I can do and places I can go. And that's... That world of possibility has awakened in many of you. You've experienced it, the desire to go and do something with your life. That's that's a wonderful thing. And that's the positive way we can think of it. But the negative way we can think of this is that it can produce in us what I think you could call the sin of presumption. And that's what James starts to speak into. Come now, he says, you who say, we'll go do, do this, that, and the other thing. And then he he comes in with these strong words, verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So you've been brought up almost from your mother's milk with the possibilities of what life can give you. You're the generation who has been allowed to dream. Who's been allowed to think, what can I do with my life? And it can breed in us that sense of presumption that I know where I'm going and I know what I'm going to do and I know what the future will bring. And then James would crash in on that and say, yet you do not know. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Presumption is a little bit like the child who says, one day when I inherit everything, this is what I will do. You know how ugly those kinds of meditations could be in your heart if you gave them room. But you know, from the point of view of God, that's exactly what it can look like when we make future plans because we, un- we misunderstand how much the future is reliant upon the grace and goodness of God. That it only exists because of his promise and not because it's ours to take the future is always a gift of grace to us never a a right that we can demand from him and all the plans that you have for your life are a gift of grace and not something that you can claim like an inheritance i'm going to take what's mine and then do this with my life and god says no no don't scorn me don't treat me like that parent who you only want what i have from understand that you live by my goodness alone how do we remedy this presumption then and live wisely when it comes to thinking about the future? I think that the basic answer James wants us to, to meditate on is this that life is, is very short. He says, You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You rarely see it these days in London, do you? But <clears throat> where I grew up, In Winchester, outside, it was very common in the morning to wake up and to see fog and mist that descended on the garden, descended outside. But then within half an hour, it's gone. We, um, my wife and I, that is, we have had personal reminders of this over the years, of how short life is. I told you in the past a story of the man who was a few years older than me, who who died when I was um, working in a company during my year before university, And uh, he tragically had a car accident on the way home from work, uh, on on his lunch break actually, and was engulfed in flames and died instantly. But even subsequent to that, my wife and I have been married 10 years and she was halfway through medical school when we got married very young. And um, so she graduated seven years ago. And in the seven years since she graduated, two of her cohort in medical school that we know of have passed away. One of them, we had the opportunity to go and sit at his bedside and, uh, and uh, my dad came and we shared the gospel with him and he made some kind of profession of faith there in front of us. He was comforted by what we described to him of God's grace. He'd had a Greek Orthodox background but no assurance of what it means to be saved. But that, that reality that such a young person with so much promise in his life could just die like that, taken by cancer. Another girl I remember having you know, socials with around... Um, See his friends, and we I remember particularly one dinner where I sat opposite this girl and had dinner and chatted with her and enjoyed her company. She had leukemia and passed away probably 18 months ago or so. And you look at, think about these situations and think, you know, we have so many dreams for our lives, but life is, life is a mist, isn't it? It is very short. Now, the world knows this. <clears throat> the world knows the shortness of life, and it's one of the things that fuels the passionate pursuit of whatever desire you have to fulfill in life. And it's what people call the bucket list thing, isn't it? I want you to understand that, that the whole bucket list mentality is about as far away from what biblical wisdom is saying as possible. And I'll tell you why. Bucket list, which is you know, where you say, I've got this list of things I want to do before I die, or places I want to visit, or experiences I want to have before I die. That mentality is actually a very bleak and hopeless mentality because it's saying this life is all there is, friends. So you better make the most of it while you're alive because beyond death, there's nothing. And that's why people aware of the shortness of life now are running even harder into experience. And now that we have more cash than we need, generally speaking, there's more option for that, isn't there? It's not just about survival anymore. It's about living the fullest life possible the bucket list mentality is hopeless and bleak it's also basically self-oriented isn't it because it's saying these are the experiences i must have in order to have the life to be able to die on my deathbed happy that i ticked every box and it's really quite tragic you think about what james is trying to inculcate in us it's the very opposite of that bucket list mentality because he's saying rather than having that bleak outlook that this life is all the fun you get and then you're gone He's saying, no, 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 this life is your brief opportunity to invest in eternity. It's the the opposite view, isn't it? That there is better beyond death, but that this life is a unique, momentary opportunity to do God's will. And instead of it being about self and seeking the experiences I want for myself, the Bible teaches us that this life, that you've been given this life as a stewardship, as something to steward for God's glory, and in particular to give yourself to service of Him in whatever way he calls you to. Can you see how that is very different? Even if, it's, even if both of those ideas are motivated by the same knowledge, life is short. But they are completely opposite ends of the spectrum in how to live your life. The Christian sees it differently. What will this create in us if we, um, if we meditate on this fact? Here as a church here in central London, if we think life is short, it's not about me making plans for going this place, that place, doing this thing and the other thing. What will it create in us if we, if we truly imbibe what he's saying, this, this tension between time and eternity? I think what it'll do in us is probably something like what Jim Elliott described when he said, wherever you are, be all there. The person who's not all there is the person who's always dreaming and discontented in the present because all they want to do is pursue the next thing in life. And I think that's something of what James is is criticizing here. Wherever you are, be all there. If you want to be of value to the people around you, even those people sat on your very left and right, even at this moment, be all there. Dig deep, put down roots. Understand that you have few moments in life to invest and to serve and to love and to give. And if you're always thinking of the next thing, presuming it will come, and you won't be doing that, will you? Not in the moment, not in the present moment. You must weigh time versus eternity. Here's the second thing you must do. You must weigh waste against worth. Waste against worth. Come now, he says, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, here's what I mean. I think the Bible shows us that One of the ways in which we can be most stupid as humans is by mistaking value, putting the wrong value on things in life. I mean, obvious examples of this aren't there? Like the businessman who spends all his time at work and none of his time with his kids and then grows up lonely with kids who hate him. Putting the wrong value on things, labeling things incorrectly. There's obvious examples of this. I always enjoyed... um, Blackadder series. I, I imagine very few of you have ever watched this thing, have you? Great, great British comedy. But there's this, there's this peasant in the medieval version of the Blackadder series, there's a peasant, Baldrick, who is appointed by the king to the house of lords. So he goes from nothing to being a lord and he's given fa- 400,000 pounds, which obviously is the equivalent today of millions, if not billions, of money. And uh, what he does is he, he purchases a giant turnip because Baldrick's dreams are just consumed with turnips. And then I read a couple of weeks ago of the story of somebody who's anonymously, or an organisation that's anonymously given 450 million US dollars for a painting that possibly might not be painted by Leonardo da Vinci, and nobody really knows. It looks like Jesus is in a dress as well, doesn't it? So, and it's called Salvatore Mundi, or the Saviour of the World, or something. And, and you know, who am I to judge whether a painting is ever worth that kind of money? But I think it is, it is obvious that as humans we struggle, don't we, to understand the value of things. We arbitrarily value some things that don't really have much value and ignore the things that do have value and get all everything turned upside down, don't we, in our lives? Which is why we don't know what to run after and what to pursue and why we lose focus so quickly. Often, the values we just absorb from those around us. I mean, the art world is a perfect example of that. The only reason art has any value is because you think other people value it. So if you didn't think that it was possible to sell the painting for the same or more, then you wouldn't have bought it in the first place. Because you think there's some other sucker out there who's going to buy this from me one day. And that's how value works. We, we all just exchange these notions of what's valuable, and we think because they're running after it, it must be valuable. And therefore, it, I'm going to run after it too. And I think that's something of what James is going after here because he says, look at you, making all these plans in your lives and saying, I'm going to spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So you think, what's the end of their dreaming? The end of their dreaming is accumulation, profit. And of course, there's nothing wrong in and itself with making a profit. If I was a businessman, I would want to make a profit. The opposite is bankruptcy. It's very stupid. But the problem is why that would ever become your your, your biggest dream in life. You know, as C.S. Lewis famously put it in his, his essay, The Weight of Glory, he says, the problem with us is not that our desires are too big, it's that they're too small, that we're far too easily pleased. That we are like the child who's happy making mud pies in the slum and doesn't know and cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. And I think that's what James is going for here. He's saying, listen, we need to carefully weigh what is a waste of your time, energy, dreams, and pursuits and what is worth something in life and start to attach the labels correctly and reprioritize. Now, this ought to be very searching for us all. It's not just about you know, the guy with far too much money to spend on paintings or these kinds of things. This is, this is true of us at the deepest level of what motivates you to do what you do. Because typically... We all have a very clear vision of the what in life. You know, and it usually follows a particular, you know, stages, doesn't it? So initially it's I need to get good grades in these next exams, and then I need to to get a good job, and then I need to get promotions within the good job and then i need to purchase a home and i need a, a spouse and then i need to um find good schools for the kids that i'm going to produce with my spouse and and you know I've, I've i've lived through enough of these stages to see how at any given moment in life the thing which you're wrapped up in consumes you but as soon as you've achieved it it's the next thing right that it's, it's, it's an endless journey until you hit that midlife crisis we were describing a few weeks ago and by a Harley Davidson, because we realized none of it was worth anything. So, sorry, I'm being too harsh once more. I get chastised for this. So, um, <laughs> We're overstating my point, I should say. But the, my, my point is this, that we're clear on the what, but we're less clear on the why. We're less clear on whether our fundamental desire is rightly aligned. So on any given thing that you're running after at any given moment, what makes it right or wrong is always the why and not the what. Almost always. I mean, the what could be something sinful, in which case you shouldn't be running after it at all. But if it's a good thing, what makes it a good thing before God is is the reason, isn't it? It's, It's the reason why you're running after it. So... You know, you take any of those examples that I just listed to you. You want a spouse. There's a good reason to want a spouse and a bad reason to want a spouse. There's the reason where you think, I need a helpmate in life in order to fulfill God's calling on my life, which is what Adam's reason was for needing a spouse. You're called to do this, Adam. I'm going to give you a helpmate and you're going to do it together. Or there's a bad reason where you just idolize the notion of relationships and think this is the one thing that's missing in order to give me fulfillment in life. And so two people marry. One does it for the wrong reason, one does it for the right reason. It's not the what that's the problem, it's the why. And I think this is what James is cutting in at when he's he's calling these businessmen out. He says, look at you as you make your plans for your life. Come now, we're going to go to this city, and then we're going to trade and stay for a year and make a profit. Now, it's not the what of what they're doing that's the problem, it's the why. The end of two people's lives can either be that you've pursued things for ultimate worth or pursued things for ultimate waste. I think there are two beautiful and very contrasting accounts that will help us understand what I'm talking about here that really focus on the issue of money. But in Luke 12, uh, Jesus tells a parable. Beautiful parable, no need to turn. I'll just read you what he says here. It's in response to an inheritance argument that's being played out when someone says to Jesus, will you adjudicate between me and my brother? Jesus says, firstly, what's it got to do with me? And then he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells the parable of a rich man who produced plentiful goods from his land. And he said, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? So he's got so much stuff that the barns that he had are now overflowing. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. Seems like a clever plan, doesn't it? If my my barns aren't big enough, I'll just build bigger ones And he says, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. You're a mist, in other words. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That is how to waste your life. And Then there's a story in John 12 of a woman called Mary who at her dinner took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. None of us know what that is, but it sounds good. <laughs> and uh, apparently it's expensive too, so apparently... A pound of pure nard would be worth about uh, let me check the footnotes in my Bible, shall I? A lot of money. I think it's nearly a year's wages. Yeah. So this is an expensive thing. So let's say average income in the UK £25,000 or something like that and let's say this is worth about £22,000. And she takes this perfume and she starts pouring it out. And She poured it on Jesus' feet and starts wiping his feet with her hair. And the whole house smelled. It just began to fill with this fragrance and this aroma. Far too much of the stuff. Far more than you could possibly need. It made no sense, that it? And of course, one of the disciples says, what about this waste? could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And you think, the what of what he's saying made a lot of sense, right? Compared to her what, what am I going to do? I'm going to pour it out on Jesus' feet and his what is not going to give it to the poor. But actually, the why was completely the other way around. He was just a greedy person who just couldn't stand seeing all this money being poured away. And she wanted to worship. She wanted her life to be his, to be Christ's. So how then can you tell whether you're pursuing the right things for the right reasons, whether your desires are misplaced, whether you have mixed up waste and worth with your life? And I think there's no easy way, actually. It's not a simple thing. It requires a great deal of heart searching and prayerful determination to surrender your life to God but I think questions like this can help you and I want to give you a few quick questions that can help or issues to consider firstly that when what you're pursuing hurts your commitment to God as a worshipper you know, do your dreams in life actually inhibit your devotion to God as a worshipper if they do then maybe maybe your heart is misaligned Here's another thing, when when your dreams in life or the things you're running after hurt your commitment to God's family and also to your neighbor, to love your neighbors we were speaking about last week, then your desires may well be misplaced. You may be becoming more like the men in James 4, running after things that actually are diminishing your life and not increasing it. Here's a big one. When When you can't let go Even if it's clear that God doesn't will this for you. When it's like an iron grip, I must have this thing, come what may. Even if God closes every door, slams them in your face and you think, I still want it. It's a very dangerous thing to want something in life that badly. Other than Jesus. When your worst fears are wrapped up in not getting it. You know, when imagining not having it sends a chill down your spine and is what keeps you up at night or makes you feel like your life wouldn't amount to anything, then, then what we're seeing there is something what you could describe as an inordinate desire. You want it too much, friend, if you fear losing it so much. Or to flip that around, when all your daydreaming is wrapped up in the pursuit of this thing, so that your imagination is fired up. What if, what if when I get there, when I have this. When all of your mind is consumed in that way, then really what you're doing is loving it with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, aren't you? And I think this is what James is wanting to, to focus in on. Come you who say, we'll, we'll trade and make a profit. He says, have you really thought about where you're going or why you're doing it? Here's my my last point. We've talked about time versus eternity. We've talked about waste versus worth. The last one is a little bit more straightforward, actually. It's more simply that you need to weigh my will versus his will. James says in verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. In all of this, friends, and really this is the point of everything I've been trying to say to you the last couple of months. In all this, we need to come back to what a Christian is by definition. And a Christian is a person who at some point has reached the end of themselves and understood that they had to give up in order to attain life. You had to surrender. You had to acknowledge your total bankruptcy before God in order to receive the life that he wanted to give you. That's what a Christian is by definition. And no person is a Christian who hasn't reached that point at some, some stage. In that sense, I think Christianity is the most humble religion of all. Because it begins with the admission of failure. And you can only enter the Christian life if you realize that you're a failure. It's the only way in. And that basic fundamental plank starts to shape the way you live. It shapes your life first in respect to salvation. What it means to be saved, of course, is none of me and all of him. I can't save myself Jesus has saved me by his death on the cross. And you all know that, but it's harder to think that way and live that way in day to day life when you start living as though your goodness matters before God and feeling his condemnation on you when you don't, uh, an imagined condemnation on you when you don't live the way you want to live. Then you're trying to save yourself again. Of course, we know what salvation is, that it's by grace, but in the day to day experience of your walk with life, giving up it's very important to keep doing, in one sense. Giving up, saving yourself. But if it's true of salvation, friends, it's also true, it's not just about getting saved, that this whole mentality shapes your life. It's also about, about the authority in your life, about where authority comes from, what authority you're surrendered to. Because I think that being a Christian, living as a disciple, is about giving up autonomy. Not only the autonomy to try and save yourself, but also the autonomy to try and rule yourself. So that we don't only surrender to Jesus as Savior, we surrender to him as Lord of our lives. That to be a Christian is to reach a moment when you say, God, I am no longer in charge. And to use the word Lord about Jesus is to say, you are. Now I'm not pretending that that's easy, because if it's got to be said that that is basically that is basically the daily challenge of the Christian life. At any given moment, am I surrendered to him, or am I trying to rule myself? Whenever you face temptation, in any given moment, that is what's going on. But the way James speaks about it here is he calls it pride. As it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. As soon as pride begins to seep in, then decisions in life become about what I can do for myself rather than how I can surrender my life to Jesus, which is humility. What does this mean then in your day-to-day life and decision-making? I think I want to take that at two levels. It's the personal and then the global. Just at the personal level, it means this. That you understand, you understand, that Christ has a claim on you. And that your fundamental desire has shifted from whatever it was that you wanted to do to now saying, my life is only lived to do the will of him who saved me. You ask, well, what is his will? I don't know his will for my life. And I honestly don't think that Christians should be agonizing over that. It's Jesus' job to reveal his will. That's what a Lord does. He reveals his will to us. We walk in obedience moment by moment, day by day, and trust him to show us what's right. But what matters more, again, than the what of what you're called to do is the why. Is your heart surrendered is my question. Do you fundamentally want to live for Jesus or not? It's the most important thing I could ever ask you. That's through the t- at the personal level. Then think about it at the global level. It means that you start to see your life within a much bigger picture of what God is doing through time and across the world, through the universe actually, all of His creation. That no longer are you an isolated person running around doing your thing, like that puck on the air hockey table bouncing around for whatever. It- plan you think is best next but you start to understand the context of your life within God's great plans and purposes and I ask you do you think all Christians really get this you may feel personally yes I want to live my life for God but I think when you look at the evidence of church and of churches it doesn't seem to me that we're all walking in step with what God's plan is in the world I think if that were the case, we would see a great deal more devotion to the mission of Jesus to save the world. We, we know what God's doing, don't we? There's no mystery about this. We know what he's doing. Nothing's changed the last few millennia. God's plan is consistent. He wants the whole world to know who Jesus is and to have the opportunity to surrender to him. And we look at our lives and say, well, where do I fit into that picture that's the important question friends this is why I think James says to them verse 17 whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it's sin I don't think any of us can stand before God and say I didn't know what to do because friends he's made his will clear to us now where does all this leave us I told you I wanted to just bring it to a focus on what it means for us to be in the city and in the church and in your future. What I'm trying to do is give you a grid to assess your life and your future plans. Time versus eternity, which means don't be presumptuous, but understand that life is short and that you live every day in dependence upon a, a holy, loving God, a gracious Father. Waste versus worth, which means that you must look at the why underneath your dreams and ask yourself, who am I doing this for, fundamentally? And my will versus your will. Do you basically want to live a life for God or not? And when these these things begin to shape you, what what we really need to have is a radically gospel-driven understanding of why we're here on earth. I love how Jesus describes his own mission on the planet in Mark 10. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus demonstrated us in perfection what it is to live a life that is poured out for others in submission to the Father and in love for neighbor. And it took him to the cross where his blood was spilled for you and me and where his very life was ebbed away willingly as he gave his life, committed his life into the Father's hands and paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And what he laid out for us was the shape of how the gospel works. That there is a man who can entrust himself to the Father by, by pouring his life out for the salvation of the world. But Jesus set a pattern for us, friends, in how he wanted his church to then go about its mission in the world, and how he wanted you as an individual to go about your mission in the world. He established that as the pattern. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So you ask yourself, what does that look like for me right now? What does that look like in terms of my relationship to this church? What does it look like in terms of my relationship to the city? Have I been treating the city like the girl who everyone wants to date but no one wants to marry? What would it look like to marry the city? To marry a local church? To say I'm I'm living a life poured out for this place and this people. And of course not all of us are called to stay. But if you're called to go what are the reasons? What would drive you? What would, comp- what would be enough to lift you out from your present context and pull you elsewhere? Because I think a lot of people do it too easily. That's what I'm trying to say, really. That it's too easy to live a life of, of drifting because we're like these businessmen. I'm going to go to this place and that place and pursue this thing and that thing. And James says, what is your life? Ask yourself, what is your life? What are you here for? How long are you going to be here? The way Paul put it to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 has resonated with me so deeply over the years. It was the first sermon I ever preached at our old church was on this verse. When he said that I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I would that every person who comes to be a part of our church and part of this and live in this city could say, could come to the point where they could say, This is this is me. I don't count my life as any value nor as precious to myself. It's all for Him. But I would also wish that every person who at some point is called to go, can also take this verse on their lips and say, the reason I'm going is for him. And in that sense, the whole of your life then can be run through, threaded through with this devotion, this submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to take communion. I would uh, ask the band to come up, please. And I think it would be good for us to, um, to sing this song, the first song, with in the quiet, and just to take communion and to sit and to reflect and to think about the things that you've been running after in life. Perhaps I haven't done such a good job of painting the The positive picture of what it can be, how fulfilling it can be, how joy-giving it can be to live for Jesus. I would only want to remind you, friends, that Jesus said that whenever you live for him, you can never lose out. The only way to gain life is to lose life. That everything I've been encouraging you to think about, and what I've been encouraging you to do in terms of saying, my life is yours, Lord Jesus, it's not to take something away from you. Not in any ultimate sense. It's rather that your life would have purpose and joy, real joy, before a holy God who loves you. So as these guys lead us in this song, I'm going to pass out the bread and the wine. And let's meditate on the cross. Let's meditate on what Jesus has done. And ask ourselves whether there are aspects of our lives, or even the entire direction that needs to be surrendered to him again. If you're not a Christian, perhaps this is the moment when you want to say, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready now. I want to live for Jesus. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I encourage you, perhaps, if that's your, your desire, then this can be the first communion you ever take. You must feel permission to do that. But let's just have a moment of quiet as we sing.